Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown. Welcome back to the Petronas Podcast. This is episode 86 of the Petronas Podcast and an incredible two-part special that we're starting today. This is part one. This is a discussion with the uh, director of R&D for Liberty Energy, Roy Ani. This is a really fantastic podcast. I'm, I am intro this in, in just a second, so just wanted to start with that. Um, this podcast was recorded on May 25th, uh, 2023. Today is Monday, June 12th, 2023. A lot has happened since then, including the incredible backsliding in oil prices. And I'm going to keep this introduction really short because this is one, this is uh, probably one of the best conversations you're going to hear on the state of the frack industry, the evolution of the frack industry, what's going on in the business, and the electric frack fleet, which is all driven by natural gas um, and the role natural gas plays. Um, but with that being said, today is June 12th. Since this podcast was recorded, we've seen incredible backsliding in oil prices. We're at 67 WTI right now, just at 71 and change for Brent. And that is after OPEC has done a second round of cuts and Saudi Arabia's voluntary cut and adjustment. So what you're not hearing on the market, and it's just incredible. If you flip back between Bloomberg and CNBC, you're going to hear tons of stuff of, are we going to a deep recession? Or are we not? Most people are saying we're not now. And, and the market just keeps going up. All that's really being driven by a, a handful, 10 to 15 stocks that are way over their skis in terms of their um, in terms of their multiples and their valuations. Yes, they have real earnings, but the all the all the, the price that's, that you're seeing on the stock market is not driven by those earnings. So that's really serious. It does look a lot like the dot-com bubble and dot-com esqueness um, that was taking place then. But that being said, the reason we're seeing this low, the the this stall out in oil prices is because we keep getting really poor economic data out of China, and there's not much in China from lifting the zero COVID band aid to really support this. And so they're not seeing, we're not seeing big um, surges in prices of copper or oil or demand for this, and that's usually because China would have to do a stimulus package and they would have to really stimulate the economy, which they have not done. So serious concerns there, and then overall overwhelming concerns globally. There's no economic data point in the globe, in the U.S., that's saying things are really great. Now, that being said, everyone's confused on the stock market because of these massive tech earnings, but that's not the actual consumer. Now, this week we have inflation data tomorrow that comes out, and then we have retail earning or retail um, data that comes out Friday. And later in Wednesday, we have the Fed meeting. And the real question is whether the Fed is going to, are they pausing? Are they not having a meeting? Are they, um, are they doing a hawkish pause? Um, they're probably not increasing, or it sounds like they're not increasing, but then if they pause this meeting, then they'll increase the next meeting. It's a complete mess. They're not telling the market very well what they're doing. We've seen the market sort of bake in higher rate increases. Um, and then the mar- the stocks, the stock market just moves. It takes it takes bad data and says that's good because then we're going to, um, that means that the Fed will slow down or the Fed will cut. Um, and you got to realize that the stock market heals well before your actual recession. And because we have not had a major shoe to drop, we've had you know, parts of those shoes dropping in the banking crisis in March, but we haven't had a major shoe drop since, that the stock market really doesn't know what to do and it just wants to rally and pretend this is all over. Um, I think it, that we're, we're not there yet. And we've got, we haven't dealt with commercial real estate. We've got a lot of crises in the pipeline that are probably going to happen. Um, so uh, just to forward you guys on what I have been up to, I was at the Oklahoma Petroleum Alliance annual meeting in Dallas. Uh, they 
I know it's not in Oklahoma. It was in Dallas over the weekend. It was awesome. I did some very heavy hitting podcasts, one with Carl Rove, one with Harold Hamm. Really awesome conversations. I also recorded the presentation I gave, which was exceptionally well-received and soup to nuts, state of the industry, everything that's going on. So um, lots to fill you guys in on, lots of forthcoming podcasts that come from that. Um, my, my weekend in, um, in Dallas, which was just absolutely exceptional. Um, and I, I think the, uh, we, we cannot underscore, I cannot underscore enough, um, how we're sort of in this, in this very unique lopsided territory of, you know, sort of the, the market bulls and oil prices really telling us right now, um, that things aren't very good. So, you know, oil prices, yes, are reflecting, you know, volatility in, in thinking about inflation read tomorrow and, and the fed this week, but that is not the only thing they're trading on. They're obviously trading on forward looking indicators for, or it, Oil is the forward-looking indicator right now for the global economy. So with that being said, really hope you guys enjoy this podcast with with uh, Director of R&D with Liberty Energy, Roy Ani. He was a fantastic guest, and it was a truly a pleasure to sit down with him. I can't thank him and Liberty enough. This is part one of this uh, podcast special. Part two will be episode 87, which will drop next week. I um, really look forward to you guys uh, listening to this and can't wait to hear the feedback. Talk to you soon, folks. Bye. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Petronas Podcast. This is a- episode 85 of the Petronas Podcast, I believe. If I have the episode number correctly, I might have to, uh, might have to change that. Um, however, it is, um, it is Thursday, May 24- 25th, sorry, Thursday, May 25th, 2023, um, and I am really pleased to introduce a, a wonderful guest today, um, and I'm in Liberty Oilfield Services, or sorry, Liberty Energy's office. I know it's hard to it's hard to fix that. I'm in Liberty Energy's office. I'm in Roy's office today, and um, Roy is known, I think, to to many probably in Colorado. Uh, he does a lot within uh, within this Liberty space, but he's known for the quiet frack fleet. So, without further introduction or introduction, uh, Roy, um, how are you? And thank you so much for coming on the pod- podcast. Oh well, thanks thanks for having me, Trish. I really appreciate it. I'm excited to to see you again and and uh, explore what. Uh, I think many people find interesting and intriguing about uh, uh, the world of frack fleets and the next generation of frack fleets. Yeah. So this the impetus for this podcast. And so you're Ani. Is it, that's how I pronounce your last name? Right, Roy yeah. Ani. You're the um, what you, what's your title? And you know, rough. I know we talked about director of R and D. Yeah, director of R&D okay. for Liberty Energy. Yes, director of R and D, which is a pretty awesome title and pretty all encompassing, given we're talking about. Liberty Energy, um, and you guys are on the forefront of a lot of technological advances on the frack side. Um, so a precursor and background to this, and I, I told you this when we were talking offline before, but um, I had Daniel Sieber on the podcast with Fundair Resources, and we were talking about the state of Colorado and emissions and everything, and um, the, the house, one of the bills that was 1294, I think it's, that's it's getting looked at, and um, we were talking about frack fleets and the lower emissions and the progression, um, and he referenced this paper, actually, um, and then I really realized this was a, you know, I didn't want to botch the conversation and just try to talk about it myself, so I, th- I truly think most folks uh, you know, you guys talk about an earnings call, um, and there's some references there. But in terms of understanding, you know, what is an electric frack fleet? What are actually the what's the basic frack technology? You know, where we move from from the evolution sort of the frack industry, and where are we going? Um, and in your earnings call, you guys talk all about your digi, you know, suite. Basically, it was just digi frack. Now it's this whole digi suite plus the purchase of Siren. 
um, and this whole new um, Liberty, the LPI division, which is all this this new gas suite, which has a lot of potential to do all kinds of different things. So there's just a there's a lot going on, and I think it's and contextually, um, as in Chris Wright does a great job in your earnings call talking about the state of the gas market and sort of uh, teeing it up for explaining why this is the impetus is upon gas right now. Um, so with that. Um, I know we have a lot of ground to cover, and it's going to get very nerdy. Um, so welcome to the Petronas podcast, because that's what we do. Um, but to timestamp this briefly, and I'll let I'll let Roy go at it. Um, but to timestamp this, we WTI is at seventy one ninety four. Brent is at seventy six twenty five. Henry Hub is getting smashed uh, continually at two twenty nine. And Dutch TTF is the real big game changer here. Is the Dutch TTF is below nine bucks. We're sitting at eight dollars seventy eight cents, which is just amazing to think about. Last August, we were at over a hundred bucks. Um, so that's how quickly the world changes, especially with natural gas um, and the fact how good we are at producing this. And then we have incredible volatility, which oil prices are really reflecting with this debt ceiling debate, which is just an ongoing thing until either until they come to some agreement. Um, and so the 10-year yield is at 3.23%. We are seeing the 30-year mortgage well above 7%. Um, that's huge. So we're not seeing stocks massively down, but this is definitely having any impact on oil prices. And oil prices are, are sort of holding that. They're also, um, Chinese demand is not good. Lots of issues going on within China. Um, that's for another podcast. But with all of that, um, the state of the frack industry, I think, matters a lot. Because in your earnings call, you guys talk about, um, there, people do ask about the state of the industry, not just, the, just the, the state of the frack side, how many frack plates are running now, and really pressure on oil prices and where we're sort of at. And I do think it, it is pretty interesting right now to think about how healthy the industry really seems and feels, especially in terms of activity, as you guys know, I'm sure you're basically sold out um, and you know your phones are ringing for people to get your fleet, and yet we're at $71 oil. So it is a bit of a unique period in terms of if we look back in pre- previous times when we were at 71, you know, things might have slowed a little bit, and a lot of this is coming on the back of the, the post-COVID move and wave. Um, so maybe if we can start, let's just start with, uh, you know, the evolution sort of of the space of maybe if you want to talk about the market, um, if you I want to talk about quiet frack fleet and the evolution in Colorado, and I definitely want to get into the state and progression of the frack side in the business. But where would you like to begin, Roy? Wow, the, there's a lot to go. <laughs> through. Um, no, I'm happy to start wherever you like. Really, um, let's let's start with the state of the market because I know that um, you know you guys mentioned your earnings call. Chris said there's roughly 250 frack plates running. You know, we were talking before about, you know, how low was it really at the bottom in during COVID when the depths of despair and minus 37 oil prices and everybody's losing their minds. We were probably in the teens, maybe single digits, maybe 30 frack plates. The point is it was very low. Um, so we're at 250 now and, um, and things seem pretty healthy. The industry seems pretty healthy in terms of going and you guys are, you guys are adding and you guys are invest, actively investing, which you typically, Liberty's always done, you know, throughout the cycles has invested. Um, so with that, um, you guys have, and we'll, maybe we'll go backwards uh, later on the Quiet Frack fleet in Colorado, but with that, you guys have talked a lot about um, the DigiFrack and the suite and the evolution. Um, and before it was sort of, you know, we heard about electrofrack fleets and DigiFrack, but now it's digi tech, it's the digi technologies and all these uh, Liberty Power Innovations and all the stuff going on in your recent purchase with a with a, of Siren Energy. So let's start there with just um, where's the sort of state of where you guys are at, and then we can go back into how you got to where you're, where you got how you got here, and where you're going from here. 
Well, as you said, uh, the demand side is really robust. Um, we're basically um, you know, fielding new requests on a daily basis for, for frack leaks, so that's exciting. It's one of the best, uh, you know, one of the best markets I've seen. So excited about that. On the technology side, what we see is a lot of our customers are really requesting they want to burn more gas, they want to reduce their costs, they want to reduce emissions. And so that means, you know, the the technology that we deploy on these on these frac sites has to be goes from tier tier two, we go to tier four, we go to tier four DGB or dual dual fuel. And now we're moving towards a 100% uh, gas um, suite. So that's that's the trend in the market. That's the trend for Liberty. We believe that um, this Digi suite or the you know when we talk about a Digi frac suite or a Digi suite, it's all 100% natural gas. So that's really the distinction. They uh, we invested quite a bit in dual fuel, and that's been very successful. But on a going from 70% natural gas, 30% diesel to 100% gas has kind of the dual benefit of reducing emissions and significantly reducing costs. So that's the, that's the next phase of our evolution, if you will. So, um, and there's, there's a lot to go through and unpack there, and we will, but can you just on the the impetus on so on the gas side there's a lot um that is super beneficial about using gas for frack and and using gas in general for 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 power generation but i'm curious as the there seem to be both a um you know the when when we think back uh, two years ago and where the electric frack fleet state of the business was there were definitely other public companies that were like hey we're not chasing this we're not going to do it and clearly that's gone people are going after electric frack now. But I, I think um, part of this podcast I want to do is, is explaining what exactly the electric frack fleet is, because it's not just, um, we don't just, we don't just plug something in and then it's all perfect and it's fine. Um, and we just have power and it's easy. So my question on the gas side is, um, was the impetus for when operators are sort of requesting this and this is the drive, was it based upon, we have field gas, we have gas at low prices, um, and we have readily available gas, or was it more emissions focused and therefore more on the electric side? Or was it just a nice combination of both and the timing is right and it sort of has worked out? I think on the, in the early days of both dual fuel and uh, electric frack, um, where we have 100% gas turbines or gas recips, or the early, the early days were definitely turbines, both of those were searching for a reduced cost frack. You know, because even one of, the, one of the things that's been pretty consistent is when when diesel was <clears throat> down in the dollar twenty five, you know, a couple of years ago, you could buy a diesel equivalent gallon of natural gas for sixty cents. You know, so it was kind of fifty percent consistently, and as it's as it's gone up, you know, diesel gets up to. Four dollars, three fifty, four dollars untaxed, and you can still buy natural gas for half that right. on a diesel equivalent right. gallon in, in a in a in a can, you know, compressed natural gas. So 
that has driven, I think, a lot of the demand. You know, they, they look at that and they go, it's kind of a win-win. We've got, um, in West Texas, there's several places that can supply field gas. So with uh, um, a light treatment of that gas, you can run it straight out of the pipe. And That's pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah so they, they see that, oh, we can reduce reduce flaring, we can get re- reduce the load on the on the pipeline. So that's that's the best if we can just plug into a pipe. Unfortunately, there's not always that possibility. Right, right. So, you know, thus our, our investment in in uh, LPI and our investment in Siren, you know, to help deliver that gas to our frack fleet. Well and I I have to speak about your this great paper. So if you're if you're wanting to understand sort of the business right now, I would say listen to the latest Liberty Earnings call and also read this this great paper that you did with Chris um, at Madison Holloway. Um, you guys call this a white paper, um, and this is so it's called the evolution or sorry evaluation of the next generation of, of fracturing fleets, um, tier four diesel, tier four dual fuel, and electric, and it does a really good job of explaining. Uh, a bit of the state of the industry, but really the sort of the so the competing challenges um, and most are positive. But how your how electric stacks up to um, electric primarily driven from gas stacks up to a tier four diesel um, or dual fuel, sorry, a tier four dual fuel, and how those stack up on an emission standpoint and fuel use. And, and you guys even get into the costs. But there's some stuff in there about you know the the as a nerd and somebody who thinks about markets and, um, you know, and a strategist, I always worry about what can go wrong. And you even say it in here, of it's the supply chain, right? Making sure you have that critical access to supplies of, it's great, and the dual fuel because, you know, when, when something's not, if you don't have gas, you're running diesel or vice versa. If you're on the electric and you're running gas, you need to have all that gas right. And that field gas, you guys kind of specify, I mean, it, we, we know it's not perfectly clean. You have to compress gas, it has to be clean. If it has H2S, the BTU content. I mean, they're not all gases created equal. So there does seem to be there's some variab- variability there that obviously I'm guessing that Siren and, and these things that you're investing in, part of that's why you're doing that is because if, if we could all just get direct field gas and it was perfect, we wouldn't need any of these other solutions. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of lessons learned. Uh, I, I would say that the pioneers in, in using field gas, we've all just we've learned so many lessons on, you know, there's, there's liquids in the line. You need to make sure that you have you know, catchers to remove the liquids, you know, dehys. There's so many lessons, you know, around H2S, around everything you said, the BTU value really matters. Most of these engines are not tolerant of high BTU gas. Oh, so they need lower. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So we, uh, we, Typically, has to be, you know, if we use a BTU basis, probably around 1050, you know, it could be 1100 BTU um, gas. And what comes out of the ground in most of the places we frack is 1250, 1300. Okay, so, so too, it's too high. Yeah. yeah. So by and large, you know, we, we uh, this is pretty straightforward. Uh, most often we refrigerate it, we can use... Um, if it's only a little bit too high, we can use other methods. But if you take it down to about minus 50, most of the ethane drops out. Okay. And then the good news is these days that ethane has value. Yep. You know, there was a time not that long yeah, ago where, where you were, we were rejecting like a million barrels a day of that. You, you were you're paying people to take it yep. away. Um, so 
yeah, that's... Uh, so it's, it's solvable. It, all of this is solvable. Yeah. And we've solved virtually all of it, right? And, and so the, the, really what we do today is if there's a... If we can get gas out of a, a, out of a pipe nearby, that's first prize, right? Let's, let's take it out of there. Let's treat it. Um, there's certainly some fleets that we have active and are coming up that will be doing just that. Everyone, everywhere else, you know, it's it's actually awesome just to get get the gas, compress it, put it in the can, bring it over. Still, you, you get such a savings, and uh, it's it's easy. Yeah, and so to me that makes it makes complete sense to me, regardless of whether you're predominantly fracking with um, tier four dual fuel or you are fracking with digi or completely electric that investment in actually having gas infrastructure. And it's, um, the way Chris describes it is great, because that's how I think of it. It's sort of pre-pipeline. It's like a pipeline, but it's it's the it's the supply chain and logistics of gas that you need to make sure you have it, just like you need to make sure you have diesel. And you know, you and I were talking about that um, offline, and I think that's it's important to think about of the state of the diesel market. And you know, if, if you guys go to Pittsburgh or you go to the East Coast, and or even here in Colorado, when you know if Suncor goes out for a few days, you see these big spreads in gasoline and diesel prices, and so that obviously impacts the business. And so when prices go, when we haven't seen diesel prices come down commensurate with gasoline prices, this is a you know it, it's a driver to have natural gas and having the reliability. I mean, the whole deal with frac, and I'm not sure everyone in the world understands this, but you want to be, you don't want any downtime. So you want to be fracking 24 seven and, you know, every minute, as many minutes as you can in those 24 hours. And so having all your logistics, everything lined up in a row and making sure you aren't waiting on water or sand or fuel and chemicals and every, all the million other things, that's pretty critical. Yeah. As you mentioned, when we were primarily running uh, dual fuel as our gas con consuming fleets. Um, the big, well, the, the great fallback on dual fuel is, as you mentioned, when you lose natural gas, it just switches over to diesel, it's seamless. It, there's no hiccup. And it's, you, you just keep, you frack on. Um, right. Right. But when you have 100% gas fleets, obviously when you lose gas, they die and we can't have that like we have to ha be in control you know to the extent possible ensure that we're not going to run out of gas and that one way to do that is to to take it on yourself and just just accept that that uh, reliability issue and, and do it yourself yeah and I'm so th this might be a good point to sort of break this out and start talking about uh, and maybe, and if you can't answer this, that's totally fine. What is the state of your of your guys's, um, you know, frack fleet? How much is? I mean, I want this allows us to get into the digi suites and and because you talk in the earnings call about a couple case that are like starting it, and then there's going to be another rollout. I think this next quarter. Um, but how much of it is is it predominantly tier four dual fuel, and then you're adding in the electrics now? So if you looked at um I would say roughly a third of our fleets are dual fuel fleets. Okay. Um, I, I don't know if I'd get exactly the ratio of uh, tier four to tier tier two, but okay. you know we have um, about a third of the fleets running on dual fuel and two thirds on diesel. Okay. And can you just so we can break this is I really want people to understand 
you know, of the, we've got tier two, tier four dual fuel, and this new electric that varying companies are doing. Um, is that roughly of my categorizing of that's, if we're thinking of simplifying the frack fleets in the, you know, frack right now, is that the three main frack fleets? Yeah, you really have uh, tier two, you have tier two dual fuel. That was kind of the first uh, uh, iteration of dual fuel. Uh, and then we went to tier four diesel. About a year later, the tier four dual fuel became available and we quickly adopted that and retrofitted all of our old tier four okay. fleets into dual fuel fleets. And now moving into 100% natural gas uh, using reciprocating uh, gas engines. Okay, so can you help explain to folks what is, because I'm guessing not every company is Liberty Energy, so there's got to be a decent amount of those tier twos, probably original tier twos, which I'm sure are working through the system of getting, you know, renovated and, and updated or whatever, but tier twos, tier two dual fuels, and then the tier four and tier four dual fuels, assuming those are all still, we have variations of those still running. Can you explain, you know, simplistically? Um, what those are and the differences, because I don't, I don't think most people understand that. And that's a, this paper is great on explaining the tier, the, the couple of those, but not the older versions. Yeah, I would say the majority of uh, the fleets out running today are going to be tier two diesel. Okay. Um, the there's certainly a decent portion um, of the some some portion of those were upfitted or converted to tier two. Uh, dual fuel and and we bought a number of tier two dual fuel uh, new fleets and so the switch from tier two to t tier two dual fuel really was you know we, we went from uh, an engine that would consume let's say on average well 100% diesel to on average something like 50 50 okay you know so when we went to tier four uh, the that's a you know EPA drove um, all these tier levels. I don't know how much you understand about. I mean, well, I think it's. I don't think most people do. So, it, you know, we don't have to get too in the weeds. But I think that that's a concept of you know what is a tier two versus a tier four, and that's we were talking about before is is an EPA driven standard. But what it actually, if you can explain what it actually resulted in, would be great. Yeah. So in the early '90s, the EPA uh, promulgated a rule that said we are going to reduce the amount of particulates and NOx from right. diesel engines. Um, particulates, of course, uh, were causing a lot of smog and NOx. So uh, tier one, tier two, tier three, and tier four, these kind of landed in the early 2000s, then late 2000s, like 2011, 12 or something was tier three that only affected a smaller horsepower range. And then for the large horsepower of 2017, we had to be over to tier four. But at the progression, you know, really the last few years going to, from tier two to tier four, we significantly reduced the amount of particulates. I think it's, you know, 10 times less particulates and 10 times less NOx going into, going into a tier four. And that's, it's, it's a it's dramatic reduction, you know. 100x or something like that from tier zero tier one did this did the, also the actual fuel use and efficiency increase as well i mean so that's where it's yeah that's where we kind of these were these were rules put in place to reduce nox and um nox and particulates the efficiency in the early days when we went from tier zero to tier one to tier 
tier two, we saw some efficiency gains for sure. Uh, but the technology that we had to employ, or not when I say we, I mean the engine manufacturers um, that collectively um, spent billions on this technology. It was a massive undertaking, especially the tier two to tier four. Yep. Uh, these, w they would gain efficiency, but then b using, because of the exhaust gas recirculation or the, the, the turbo or w the things we had to do to reduce the pressures in the cylinder to reduce NOx, we'd gain the efficiency and we'd lose it again. So really the efficiency when, you know, from a uh, fuel usage or a, a carbon in intensive standpoint, the, when we went from tier two to tier four, was no change. They 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 virtually use the same amount of fuel, but they put out dramatically less NOx in particular. Right. I, it reminds me a lot of um, and NOx for folks. I don't know if we meant nitrous oxides. We 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 have very high standards and have in the U.S. for very you know low NOx. I mean we have, we have some of the lowest NOx and SOx sulfur dioxide emissions in the world because of our emission standards. And it reminds me a lot of the refining industry. If you if you spend time with refiners, I mean they had to reduce those. I mean, they had massive changes of, of, you know, really making refineries a lot cleaner in, in their emissions output for NOx and SOC, probably other things I'm getting wrong. Um, but I know it was the PPM, it was the parts per million. And I remember, you know, if, if you get a refiner, refinery guy to like walk you through, it's that, yeah, the big chunks w were pretty easy. You know, they worked on that, got the big chunks, and then it's really reducing at the bottom end that, you know, getting the parts per million down as low as they can, that gets really harder and it requires significant investment. And the problem is, is that, you know, it's, they're doing it and they did it, but it costs a lot and you don't get a return on it. Um, and so these, all these standards and not saying that we shouldn't be doing this to make things cleaner, but it, the cost component is really, really huge. Um, and so having clean really, I mean, we just had the, a couple of years ago, lower sulfur and, and diesel standards and um, I mean that matters a lot but it's also there's huge costs it's the reason why I know you don't build a refinery every day I mean there's permitting issues with that but it's also because there's massive cost implications and you have to get a return and refineries are kind of a thin margin business so it's one of those things that that's I think a lot of folks probably don't understand that you aren't getting a material you're not using less but still regardless of that the industry the frack industry and I'm guessing also the operators are pushing the industry to flip to be moving toward at the very least to tier four dual fuel or tier four so that they can also be showing their lower CO2 emissions on their end. Yeah, absolutely. And we're so just to give you an idea of the cost implications we're talking about. So we talk about, you know, we went from tier two to tier four engines. Um, you know, that was probably about a 50% increase in the cost of an engine. Um, and we, so it, it, it's extremely meaningful. You know, we're talking about an engine that was $350,000 and, and, and it went overnight to 550,000 uh, yeah. or something like that. So that's huge. the cost to go to tier four was massive. Well, I don't think anybody, because of the complexity of these tier four engines thought that they were gonna be cheaper to operate and we were right about that, you know. We, we so we got the increased cost of the engine, and we also got increased maintenance. Give you an idea. I mean, I think you can understand the uh, kind of generally where this this puts you. But in tier zero, kind of late '80s, early '90s, the injection pressures. So the pressure we pressure that fuel up to, and then we 
push it through the injector into the cylinder, we were injecting at maybe 150 PSI. You know, these were big nozzles. They, we had a, a common rail system. We just pressured up to about 150 and we'd, we'd squirt it out. And it, it kind of would be some liquid and some, some would be atomized. On a tier four, that's gone to 35,000 PSI. And so we have individual so pumps. There's a massive, massive uh, change. Yeah, yeah. The, and the, the size of the injectors, you know, and so the injectors wear out faster because... A lot more things can go wrong. Yeah, everything can go wrong with these. And so, we, yeah, the investment to make these improvements, I'm happy to do it, but it's not small. And as we move into gas engines, it's another step change you know you're talking about another 50 percent increase in the cost of these engines and we're not even talking about the added layers and components of the also the evolution and state of frac which has went from you know a lot less fluid and a lot less uh, sand or propellant being pumped to a lot more and so that's just the engine but we also have uh, a lot of wear and tear on the machinery from pumping this very fine mesh you know, 100 mesh sands that it's different than it was of, I mean, you're pumping more and you're pumping a finer grain. So those are, there's just, that's the evolution in the state of the business. And that changes, I mean, you add all that stuff and you compound it. And then it sounds like you have a lot of equipment maintenance um, and stuff that you have to like, that's a continually thing to work on that, and you can't, and you can't have downtime. So this is something that it's, it's still, it's really impressive to me to just think about all that, of that everything's got to be working and humming just right. Um, and I know I've been to your, your guys's, uh, your field office out here where you have, you're working on the trucks and everything. And I mean, this is a constant that you have to be keeping this stuff fine tuned, but I, I'm not sure that the average folks appreciate that level of, uh, both sides are constant maintenance on this equipment. And it's constant maintenance, and like you mentioned, the uh, amount of hours that we frack right. daily. It, you know, ten years ago, it was nine, ten hours a day, and and now we have crews daily that frack twenty four hours. And when do you get the chance to pull that equipment yeah. out and yeah. work on it? And so there's that expectation of you know, a higher uh, availability for all that equipment. At the same time, you, you don't have access to the equipment to, so you have the planning required and the, love, the technical ability of the maintenance um, departments and crews these days. It's just, it, it just continues to amaze me even that they can keep these things going as well as they do, especially as the complexity just ramps up with these engines every, every stage. Yeah, no, that's a, it's a really good point. I think this, people, uh, do not they underestimate supply chain logistics and I mean supply chain in more than just uh, you know sand and equipment but the whole putting the stuff together and you know allocating maintenance time um, so so we've sort of walked through you know the evolution of of where we're moving toward and and we still have older frac fleets and running but you know pushing on the tier fours um, and that's obviously a there there does seem to me huge benefits in reading this paper of the tier four dual fuel meaning that because you have a dual fuel you can use it i mean you have you have the benefits of running the gas on an emission standpoint it's pretty competitive it sounds like from a co2 perspective of reducing co2 emissions um and also it doesn't have the same and this is we'll, we can get into what the digi side and the electric side is and and how it's actually run from from a gas perspective um but the dual fuel sounds you know i'm, I'm 
inclined toward it in so many ways because like you described when one's not working when I if I don't have enough gas I can run the diesel and the fact that it's it's instantaneous um, and also so if you're you're not idling um, and the idle time is is a mess um, so it does seem to be the ramp up and the ramp down seem it, from my understanding seems a little easier um, and then, so there's efficiencies with that and savings with that um, and I think the maintenance side uh, there are probably lots of efficiencies and lots of cost savings, especially if you're using 100% gas on the electric side, but there's also maintenance issues with that and upfront costs. So um, I'm saying a lot there. Um, do you, is that an accurate description? And can, may, can you maybe help me understand that better and break that down for listeners of, you know, what are the, these dual fuel benefits really do seem to me have these positives, um, but then that will allow us to get into this EFRAC conversation. So the dual fuel, does have a lot of advantages and most of them are centered around cost savings right it's it's reduction in uh, diesel burn and it's not a small thing you know with tier four dual fuel you can you can hit that 70 percent plus uh across across the pad um 70 percent gas yeah 30 percent diesel yeah which is Uh, great which yeah it's it's a big improvement over 50 50 with with tier two and so happy to see that the like like you talked about it's awesome because when if for some reason you have a gas interruption or a gas problem you just frack on on diesel and that's great the the they are i guess the downside to those engines is they are incredibly complex and they are high maintenance um, to keep a dual fuel fleet running on gas continuously requires a lot more attention. Okay. We, we quite often will have an extra technician on site just to manage, just to work on the dual fuel side of that engine. And so that's maybe the downside for the operator um, or for us is that we, we have to put additional resources into maintaining that and maintaining, again, like we talked about, trying to maintain these systems in real time when we're trying to do 24 hours of pump time a day, it, it's just, it's really challenging. Um, so you mentioned, this paper mentioned something about uh, screen outs, and I think it was in with regards to if you didn't have the fuel, right, if you didn't have the fuel, but there was something to talk about with the electric side. And I, I'm not sure if I'm doing a good job of, of rounding the circle or rounding or squaring the circle on these topics, but um, so, the, the, you have to have a lot of maintenance. They talk about this paper as well. Again, worth reading of having extra technician stuff on the on the dual fuel. Um, so, on then the the impetus and the push. Then, so tell me the impetus and push on the whole digi suite of you know you guys have obviously are doing it, um, and this isn't this is a step change from tier four dual fuel, um, but it's not. I think when we think of, when people think of an electric frack fleet, they're literally thinking electric. And I'm not saying that people necessarily close to the industry, but a lot of folks and maybe even some Wall Street analysts may be thinking, you know, electric, um, great. Um, so let's talk about what is it and yeah. um, and why did you guys, why did you guys lean into it? Yeah, so the, the early electric fleets uh, were, and, and I'll back up. So to be sure, these electric fleets don't just plug in right. to the grid. You know, we talk about um, how much how much power a frack fleet needs, and it varies, but for the most part, we could probably say 25 to 30 megawatts 
of power is when we're up and fracking. That's the kind of power that we need to draw, or we do draw from our pumps. Now, that you know, megawatt roughly uh, would supply a thousand homes worth of power. So, if you think about, I need to power up this frac fleet. Suddenly, I need. There was in a place, you know, maybe in in West Texas or uh, in, in far afield. If for those of you that have been in West Texas, mm-hmm. it's 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 pretty remote, and so the 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 grid really isn't very robust there. A lot of the lines are kind of thirty five thousand volt lines. They're 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 not really designed to take this kind of power. But if you imagine just a a town of 25,000 people popping up there. And now we need all that power. All at once. All at once for about two weeks and then we don't need it anymore. Now we need it over here. And so it's not really, it's probably technically feasible to plug into the grid in certain places on the grid, but. No, it's not, I mean, I think the description of uh, that the way you break down the megawatts is great because I think a, lo- a lot of people with the push on the energy transition and issue stuff, it is that we just have to electrify. So when you'd be depends on what your grid is, if it would be green. But you, the power you need for frac is so different from just drilling and the ability to just plug in. And you even hear of a lot of folks now talking about the lack of electricity availability in the field, not for frac, but for for just post for, for production and the need for more electricity in the field. So that's already a thing. So. And, and folks that are, a lot of folks who listen to this podcast are in the industry, so, but if you have not been out to Midland or North Dakota or grew up around the oil field, it is really pretty, it's usually in remote places, it's spread out, and this, yeah, you don't have, um, you just don't have this power generation capacity readily available. So it's also why if you're smart and thinking, oh, it makes sense to invest in this stuff, it does, because um, y- you just don't have it readily available. And if we are thinking we're going to have grid issues, it makes super sense to me to be investing in things that could provide you with that. So I think that's a great backdrop of 30, 30 to 35 megawatts, you're 20, saying? 25 to 30 25 to 30. Yeah. Well, how does that compare to on the drilling side? What is required on the drilling side? You know, I think there, there's a lot of uh, drillers that have been able to use electric rigs here and actually pull off the grid um, in the DJ basin and, and elsewhere. And, and I think they plan for about 3 megawatts, but okay. they so, probably probably use about you know two or maybe a little bit more than two um, okay so it's significant i just want to make sure it listeners understand significantly we're talking one to three exactly it's It's a a fraction of it so very different okay sorry so continue well so so because you can't plug into the grid and pull just 25 megawatts off everywhere you have to bring your power with you um and so the first uh generation of electric by and large brought large turbines um, to generate their own, own electricity, and these were uh, natural gas-powered turbines, and you know they would put out anywhere from you know six to to thirty-five megawatts each. Um, so in some cases, you just need one big turbine to power an entire site. Sometimes you would do a, a number of small turbines to power the site. So you bring that. That was like Gen One. And it's pretty effective. I mean, these turbines, they, they run on a wide variety of gases, um, so they don't require a lot of treatment. They're not terribly uh, 
bothered by H2S. Um, and so it was kind of a great, it was it's a great, pretty resilient. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. It was, it was nice. The, the problem is they're, that relative to natural gas reciprocating engines, they're pretty inefficient. Okay. Um, and so you have kind of two problems there. If you're, they, they use a lot more gas and so it costs more money. And then they, uh, it, it also increases the, the carbon footprint if you're, so you're they're so it sounds like they're slightly more resilient, um, but they if you they're using a lot more so the inefficiency is is big. Do they work? And I, you kind of mentioned this in here, and I I wanted to um, d does it work similarly to a nat like maybe this isn't Gen One, but a natural gas power plant? Is that how we should be thinking? Like folks can think about it? is that is this similar process or not? It's yeah. Some sometimes they use the very same turbines okay. that they use, okay. uh, and sometimes they use these in in power plants for peak shaving. If you can, um, if you can spin up a turbine quickly in in areas of, of peak demand, where you just we just need an extra, you know, forty fifty megawatts for the peak hour usages, and then just shut them back down. That's exactly the, where they would use these types of turbines okay. in, in a power plant. Okay, so but that was Gen One. Yeah, then... so so we we looked hard at that, and we had we had already published this paper, and we felt like, you know, it it was kind of going. When to, was that? Sorry, just for time stamping that. Roughly. So, uh, the original paper I think was back in 2017, 2018, okay. and then we updated it uh, here a little over a year ago. Okay. So. Um, so we kind of looked at the, the turbines and, and felt like it's a single point of failure in many cases if your turbine goes down right. or your whole fleet goes down and turbines were long lead and they're hard to fix and they're, so we, uh, they're, they're resilient and they do tend to run for forever. I mean, these, these are long lived assets, you know, but we just didn't feel confident that that was um, where we wanted to go and so we continued to invest in dual fuel you know we, we felt like hey, this is this gets us um, a lower carbon footprint it gets us lower fuel usage it gets us most of the way there with tier 4 dual fuel we're using 70% gas and it, it's if we have any gas interruptions frack on and like you pointed out that's the name of our game we we're here to frack right so a couple of years ago, we started looking into well, what 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 could be the future? Uh, several, probably four or five years ago now, and the electric. It, if you generate the power with natural gas reciprocating engines, you kind of get the best of both worlds. You get very high efficiency, even much higher than you would get with with diesel, and you get. Um, kind of a more distributed power um, on the pad where you have maybe 10 or 12 gensets running. If one gets shut down, you just turn up the other 11 a mm -hmm. little bit, right? So you have this natural backup. And that was really important to our operations Absolutely. guys. Like they did not want to have, they, they hate having a single point of failure anywhere in, in the system. And it was very intimidating for them to say, well, we're going to have if we had one big turbine that went down, oh, that's a problem. So, uh, yeah, so we, we said, okay, well, 
maybe this has legs. Let's let's look at what what we could invest in on the the natural gas reciprocating generator side to match up with our electric pumps. So that's that's the direction we started moving uh, three four years ago. And that's when um, so that's that's the direction you started moving. That's when we first saw the launch. I believe the launch of the Digifrac was about two years ago, right? Where you guys had it, you were displaying it here downtown Denver, Investor Day. You might have talked about it before then, but this was, yep. you know, uh, June of 2021. I, I um, think you're spot on. Uh, I think that's when we had it. Um, so so that's that's the spring. So where are we from then and where you just talked about where are we at now with this, you know, suite of, um, you know, what Chris talks about in the earnings, so this suite of digi technologies and all these, you know, digi hybrid hybrid DigiPrime, um, which was, he said, was an, announced at the SPE conference, at the Hydraulic Fracturing Technology Conference. Um, I'm slightly lost in terms of, I mean, I know what these things are, but I would love, I would love for you, because we've talked about it, but if you could walk through where we, from June of 2021 on your investor day to now on these suite, where, where's the movement, where are we thinking, and what is a hybrid DigiPrime? Yeah, so June of 2021. Also reminds well, me of Transformers. Yeah, so there you go. Did you, yeah. Prime and yeah. yeah, there you go. Um, June of 21, we had uh, we had our investor day, and that was we had a, a quintuplex. Um, it was really our proof of concept uh, first Digifrac pump, and we had we took it out. We ran it on diesel generation, and just prove out the concept that this could work, and it's it's a departure from conventional electric. So most of the electric uh, frack pumps out there have a single big motor hooked onto a pump. Our technology, again, wanting to have um, kind of redundancy in the system has 10 electric motors hooked to each pump. So if one electric motor fails, well, turn the other nine up a little bit. And that was, you know, one of the important um, features we, th we saw of the technology that we developed. So over the last couple of years, we've, we've commercialized that pump. We've invested in uh, natural gas reciprocating gen sets. And those, even that transition is, I think, kind of interesting because these are engines that were only approved for uh, basically fixed stationary. They were approved for power generation. They were approved right. for gas compression, but they weren't pro approved for non-road mobile. Right. And so part of this uh, evolution was getting these engines in to have, be EPA certified for a non-road mobile application. And <clears throat> that it's no small task either. That Absolutely. It, it's, it's, it's millions of dollars to do these tests and the EPA is, you know, they're they spend a lot of time making sure that what you put out there is meeting the standards that they set out. So that was that was a hurdle. We we've kind of overcome, you know, both of those hurdles, and now we have uh, fleets out there. Um, we have one fleet in West Texas running that is, well, it's just that we're generating power on site using gas reciprocating engines, and we're consuming it with our electric motors. And so that's awesome.